episode 61 of the Soccer Brothers Podcast. I'm Nihal Qatar, and we have a great show for you. We had the opportunity to sit down with co-host of the Total Soccer Show, Daryl Grove, and discuss his experience with soccer back in England, as well as his experience with American soccer culture once he moved over here. It's a very interesting interview, and it's one you won't want to miss. Also, if you're new around here, I'm usually joined by my brother Sahil. He was there during our interview with Daryl Grove, so you'll hear him then, but unfortunately, he's feeling a little bit under the weather, so he isn't here for the intro and the outro. Also, you're going to want to check out our previous episode, episode number 60 of the Soccer Brothers podcast, in which we interviewed U.S. men's national team legend Landon Donovan. All of our podcast episodes can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and on our website, SoccerBrothersPodcast.com. We just recently launched our website. We're really excited about it. Go check it out. Also, this episode is sponsored by Ambitious Strike, the amazing soccer-themed apparel company. Go check out their website, ambitiousstrike.com, and look at their merchandise. It's fantastic. I'm wearing a shirt right now. It's so comfortable, and it looks really cool. Use the code BROTHERS at checkout for a 15% off discount on your entire purchase. The link to their website will be in the description. Well, without further ado, here is our interview with Daryl Grove. All right. Hello, Daryl. Thank you for being on. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Of course. All right, let's get right into the questions. But before we start, let's get to know a little bit about yourself. Where in England were you born, and what is your soccer background? So I am from the West Midlands. Um, it's an area that's known as the Black Country. Uh, we set the colloquial name for it because it was where a lot of industrial stuff happened. So there was literally sort of black smoke in the sky all the time. Um, the very specific town I'm from is called Hales Owen. Okay, and we know you're a Wolverhampton fan. How far away are you from the team where they play? Uh, so, Hales Owen is maybe 10 miles from Wolverhampton and 10 miles from Birmingham. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, uh, a short train journey into Wolverhampton. Is, is, there, is there a team where you're from? Yeah, the, the mighty, mighty Hales Owen town. <laughs> the, the non-league team that are in Hales Owen. I mean, they, they sort of... Oh, I've forgotten the name of the league. I think it's the Northern Premier League. It's maybe the sixth or seventh tier wow. of English soccer. Yeah, and I, I know a couple of episodes ago on the Total Soccer Show, you were talking about how you actually played some non-league football. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? I played some non-league football. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> no, no, I didn't play for any sort of non-league team other than just sort of um, amateur teams growing up. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. But you said you guys got promoted quite a bit. Yeah, no. oh, are you talking about uh, Taylor and I? No, no, no. Uh, I thought you, maybe maybe I'm remembering wrong, but uh, you and your friends were part of, maybe it wasn't a non-league team, it was an amateur team, um, but you guys were pretty good in your, not oh, in your youth. Yes. Yeah, you're right, sorry, I played in the, uh, the Kidderminster and District League, <laughs> That's right. yeah, but it was, it, it was very non-professional, right? None okay. of us were paid, but there were some very good players on the team, um, but it was all guys who had maybe been through um, academies of... Uh, <laughs> professional teams and then you know then not made it and then pl- they played for this team yeah so it's a good standard but i don't want anyone to think i never want to sort of accidentally give the impression i was playing any sort of professional soccer okay okay that that, that was my fault i must have just remembered incorrectly i'm sure oh, you no, said right. i mean i guess i'm maybe happy that someone thought that <laughs> <laughs> but you do play now with taylor and you're a coach now is that correct yeah the two of us coach the uh, the richmond street soccer team um street soccer is a national non-profit it's for um, guys and girls who are homeless or are in substance abuse recovery. Um, so we coach the Richmond chapter of that team. Oh, that's awesome. 
that's actually incredible. Um, all right, so we know where you're from now. We know a little bit about your background in England. So when did you come to the U.S.? Um, I came here October 2005, um, and I've been here ever since, yeah. Okay, and so did you meet Taylor through soccer? So this is a little bit about the, the Total Soccer Show. How, how did the Total Soccer Show come into being? Yeah, that is what happened. I was playing on um, a sort of a Sunday team here called Richmond City, um, and Taylor was on the same team. So I think it was 2008 was when we met. Um, and I'd recently been doing a podcast for The Offside and World Cup Blog. I'm not sure if you remember those websites. They sort of they got bought out by SB Nation a few years back, so okay. they're no longer around. Um, and that podcast stopped happening because the guy who produced it sort of um, had had enough of putting it together. Uh, and Taylor had this idea that, yeah, maybe we, should, uh, maybe we should do a show together as well. It was sort of not too long after we'd become friends. It was one of the, uh, the earliest things we started to do together. Wow. So, like, when you came to the U.S., did you have any preconceived notions about MLS or U.S. soccer? I really didn't. I didn't. This is maybe worse than having any preconceived notions. Is I just didn't think much about it at all. I just sort of thought, all right, I'll go and see what that, what's going on there. Like, I don't think I could have named many U.S. national team players except maybe what I'd seen in the World Cup. Like, I'm not sure I could have named a player beyond Landon Donovan in 2005. Yeah, that's that's understandable. And is that sort of how it was in, in England? It's just no one really pay, paid any attention to U.S. soccer at all? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it, right? People would only think of the players who would come and play in England. So... During the 90s, people would have heard of John Harkes and yeah. Kobe Jones because they came and played for Sheffield Wednesday and Coventry City, yeah. uh, both uh, for a couple of years. But I think no one ever sort of... It, it's a very weird thing in England. Everybody just thinks that the Premier League is the centre of the world. It's like in the old days where people used to think that the earth revolved around the sun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so you don't even have uh, have the, the thought to have an opinion about someone else's league. At least back in... Back in the day, things may have changed now because I know, for example, Major League Soccer is screened on Sky Sports. Right. It's on TV over there now. Right. As you talked about, most of the American players that you know uh, Premier League fans in England know of are the ones that played there. So, like Clint Dempsey, Brian McBride, Landon Donovan, did, did you ever feel like they had higher standards in the Premier League, or they had to play better to be noticed? Was there any stigma against the American game? I would say not from me, but I have. I've heard from players who've gone over there that there is this thing of you sort of have to prove yourself a little more because there's this basic assumption that maybe you are sort of all track and field athletic type thing and you don't have like the tactical knowledge and that kind of stuff. So I, I imagine that it is a thing that you have to get over. But I also know that I, when you had a professional team, I interviewed um, Danny Carbassian a few months back. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, he was briefly at Arsenal. And actually he was at Arsenal for a few years, but he, you know, he played briefly before he got injured. Um, and he was saying that it didn't take long for him to be accepted once everybody could see that he could play. So I think it's just that initial hump you have to get over. That makes sense. So when you got here, did you imme immediately start watching Major League Soccer or no? I think the, you know, the first thing I did, because I'm in Richmond, Virginia, right, which right. is in the, sort of the catchment area for D.C. United. So we had uh, D.C. United games were screened on the sort of local cable channel. I think it was a Comcast channel. Um, so, and it was in the Freddie Adu era, right? So <laughs> Freddie Adu was there. So I was really, that was the only DC player that I'd ever heard of. So I was tuning in to sort of get a look at this 15-year-old kid who was playing for, for DC United. So yeah, I started watching some DC in that era. As you started to watch it, I mean, was it hard for you to get into knowing the disparity in quality between uh, the English Premier League and, and MLS? And I know that's something you sort of just talked about on your latest episode of the Total Soccer Show, the disparity. Um, but... 
it, was it hard for you to get into? A little bit back then, because I would say the quality was nowhere near back then what it is now. Right, right. But it's so it's so much better now. Um, but there's also a thing where like I was sort of I saw the U.S. national team play a couple of times, and I really mm. thought, oh, I like this team. I want to get into this team. So I would watch MLS with maybe one eye on looking for um, U.S. national team players. Okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. And and is that a product of your podcast or just you as a fan? You wanted you were interested. Yeah, that was just me as a fan because that predates the podcast by maybe four years, just under four years. Um, and it was all, but it was also part of me. Um, I took a job working originally for that website I mentioned, uh, World Cup Blog, yeah. and I was the sort of the U.S. national team uh, writer. Like I ran the U.S. national uh-huh. team section of the website, and I sort of had to very quickly get up to speed on the U.S. national team. So it was, it was almost like a, a research project to sort of really get myself up to speed on it. In terms of fandom, what differences do you see between you know MLS fans or even Richmond City fans or Richmond Kickers fans, excuse me, uh, and fans in England? I think so. I've got experience with um, the Richmond Kickers. I would go to, to those games a lot. I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we do the commentary now, so right. I'm in the commentary booth, but you know, I've been in the stands a lot. And then I've also been to RFK quite a lot to watch um, DC United play. Um, I'm not sure. I think maybe... Obviously, every Premier League game I've been to or Championship game when it was Wolves in the Championship, there are obviously more people there. Right. Um, but there's kind of, I don't know, there's, there's something about, say, even at, I don't know if you've seen a DC game where like the Barra Brava are sort of jumping up and down and singing yeah. a song. And there's that kind of like Spanish language element as well. They're singing uh-huh. some songs that are in Spanish. Like it feels a bit more multicultural in that way, which I, I always find kind of interesting because I was just used to this. Um, having the same few basic English songs about you know your team being by far the greatest team the world has ever seen and, and all that. So it, it was kind of new to me to see some new songs, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I know I go to crew matches quite a bit, Columbus crew matches, yeah. and uh, in the Nordeca, which is the supporter section for the crew, uh, a lot of women are, are there and are welcome. Is that something that you see in England in terms of the hardcore fans? I mean, yeah, especially now more than, say, in the 1980s. Like, I wasn't old enough to go to games in the 1980s, but I've seen yeah. footage where it is just, like... I mean, I don't want to cast, like, too much of a wide net, but it seemed to be basically racist men. The <laughs> 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 core element of fans. And English fans really did have a bad reputation right. in, in the 80s. And, again, I want to make sure I'm not saying that's all, that's all of everybody, but it was this very sort of aggressive sort of mindset, it seemed like. Um, and I think that has changed over the last sort of 20... 20-something years. Um, but yeah, I, I would say I do see more women and more children um, at games here in the US, especially at kickers games because they've got this kind of family-friendly atmosphere. Um, oh, and talking about this, you know, the thing that I really notice is different is tailgating. Uh-huh. There is, there's no tailgating at uh, any English games I've been to. There's just going to the pub before the game, which is sort of not as communal as the tailgating I've been to right. at kickers games in DC where everybody you know gathers around and there's a cookout and all that stuff's going on. That's, I've, I've really enjoyed that aspect, which is something I never considered before. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I haven't been to a Premier League game yet, um, but I think one of the main differences for me when watching is the away fans. Um, because, you know, if, if you have a team like Everton and Liverpool, where literally Stanley Park separates them, but, you know, the, I mean, there's the Red Bulls and NYCFC, but even that, it's like an hour train ride. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard uh, to have that sort of that's a similar atmosphere. Uh, is that something maybe you've experienced? And also the clubs like Everton. I'm an Everton fan, so that's why I keep on talking about them. But <laughs> Everton and Liverpool, you know, they're sort of embedded in the culture of the city. 
um, or of even the families. It's sort of different in that aspect, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, definitely. So taking where I'm from as an example, um, the big teams are Aston Villa, Birmingham City, West Bromwich Albion and Wolverhampton, right? So Mm -hmm. those four teams that basically you have your choice to support. Um, and there is like a rivalry amongst all those four teams and there are even smaller teams lower down like some people will only support say Kidderminster Harriers or Hauser in town but there are those big four whereas yeah it's, it, it is a weird thing to me it's a very American thing right to have um, one most most cities have just one team and everybody supports that team and then your rivalry is someone like uh, maybe a hundred miles down the interstate is, <laughs> right. is your rival yeah all right so so obviously this is a common topic but um, does promotion and relegation make the atmosphere in England more intense in comparison to the U.S.? And do you think that's the U- that's something that U.S. soccer should consider when it's ready? I think especially, I mean, I can't say that it contributes overall, but I can say those days when it's on the line, is it's very special, right? If your team's going to get relegated that day unless you win and you win, it's incredible. Or if your team's going to get promoted if you win, it's it's an incredible sort of electric feeling and I would I saw Alexi Lalas on um, on Fox Sports arguing that sort of making the playoffs and not making the playoffs is the same kind of thing and I'm not I, I agree that it's kind of exciting but I'm not <laughs> convinced that it's sort of as it doesn't feel as life and death right because you're right. still in MLS next season even if you don't make the playoffs right and there's not there's not a whole bunch of money on the line either for the club yeah exactly yeah because you can sort of you know you can get relegated and you can spiral you can really go out of control in your club might never come back. Whereas in MLS, you get a higher draft pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Make the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, As yeah. to whether whether the um, US soccer should consider that, I, I, it's something I would like to see, and I think they should have one eye on it. But I wouldn't like to see US soccer sort of risk um, risk the stability of the current structure in order to make it happen. So I don't think they should they shouldn't make it happen until it's definitely viable and clubs won't get in trouble sort of financially. Right, and we're seeing it with the NASL already, and I know that's something you guys just talked about too. Um, yeah. You know, they're in trouble because... And you, you were sort of made, making the case that this might be because they're a decentralized league, uh, competing with a centralized league. Um, so, yeah, it... And I really do like your... I think it's your idea. I don't want to give all the credit to you if, if it's not of having maybe an MLS 1 and an MLS 2. So it's sort of the same entity, but there's promotion yeah. and relegation within that. I, so I see that as the only possible version of promotion relegation that MLS are going to allow to exist, right? Because right. why, why would they charge, what is it, 100 million or more exactly. for an expansion fee? Yeah. Um, and then they suddenly, someone's paid that, maybe so Atlanta and Minnesota have paid that. But then in like 2020, they just let another team get promoted up to MLS. Right. It's it seems like that that's not they're not going to let that happen. So the only like realistic version of promotion relegation is for basically MLS. We, I think we were talking of it as MLS basically maybe swallowing USL um, and some of those NASL teams, depending on what happens with that league, and then forming a promotion and relegation up and down amongst that structure. Yeah, and and I think one of the problems with quote-unquote minor league teams in the U.S. is they are sort of stigmatized. And, you know, I'm from Toledo, we're from Toledo, uh, and we have a minor league baseball team called the Toledo Mudhens. And people go to the games and stuff, but you're either a Detroit Tigers fan or a Cleveland Indians fan, you know, so you you go to the professional team um, or to the major league team. And I think, you know, if you have the opportunity for promotion, uh, if – you know, Richmond Kickers have an opportunity for promotion. They might get a bigger pull in terms of attendance and in terms of media attention. 
so I think overall it would help, but as you say, I, I mean, U.S. soccer is not, and MLS is not ready for that yet. But I think the, the thing, like a team like the Kickers, they're sort of very sensibly sort of staying in business since I believe it's like 1993, yeah. you know, making sure that they're not over-expanding, that everything's viable. And I really think, like no one, no one from the organization has actually said this to me, but I really think that they're hoping that one day the, the pie just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where like the, the big league will include a team like the Richmond Kickers. So even though, I think, I mean, Richmond's not a tiny city, but it's like the 46th biggest market or something. So it's not really in contention for um, a major franchise of any team. It has no major franchises um, in any other sport, right? Right. Um, but I really think they might be hoping that if soccer keeps growing and growing and growing, then eventually um, the bigger structure can afford to absorb a smaller team like the Kickers. Yeah, I mean, that would be that'd be really nice to see. Uh, there's obviously huge sections of the country without soccer teams, so... Uh, yeah. All right, so uh, t- talking about you as an analyst and a co-host, obviously your, your show is very successful. How have you grown as an analyst and podcast host since you've begun the podcast? Oh, I think um, the, the major, major thing is we've definitely got more confident in our opinions, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I think not in a bad way, but more in a way that like we'll watch something and like have a feeling that something's just happened, and we'll sort of have the confidence to go back and look at it and believe that we can figure out why this happened, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make Whereas sense. Whereas before, early on, I think we would really watch a game and we'd be unable to say why something had happened. We'd just be sort of flummoxed by it. And I really think it's like a, um, a thing of just watching enough soccer the amount of soccer i've watched was like quite a lot before but since we started doing the show seriously it's gone off the charts and i think there's just think of the more you see the more things make sense it's like if you watch um if you watch uh, the sixth sense if you watch it twice then you know what's happening you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i think yeah i think it's definitely that and it's just i think it was get evolving these sort of techniques for spotting things um so we we like we've managed to be able to figure out uh, and this is kind of obvious stuff, but it's stuff that I didn't know before. Like, we can see how how high a team is playing. Like, whether it's a high press, where their line of pressure is, we can spot whether they're zonal marking or man marking on corner kicks and free kicks. We can like look out for the most dangerous players on one team and see um, if the other team are man marking them or if they're just trying to pass that dangerous guy around. Like Manchester United tried to do with Kevin De Bruyne um, not too long ago. So yeah, yeah so these are just little techniques that we figured out along the way. So when you and Taylor are watching, like, say, a U.S. men's national team match, which is probably some of your biggest episodes because that's one yeah. of your focuses, uh, do you guys have defined roles when watching, or do you guys watch it once as fans and then re-watch it uh, and look for more specific things? It's the second one. We definitely, deliberately, uh, we've been very conscious of not letting the fact that we're sort of doing it as a job take the fun out of it. So first run through is we just watch it sort of emotionally and enjoy it and just that's it. We just watch it and enjoy it. And we'll always DVR it, of course. Um, And then we go back and we start because once you've seen the game and you know what's happened, then you can start asking, why did this happen? Right. So we'll be like, why did they keep getting down our left side? Right. So then we go back and we'll, you know, we'll watch and pause and rewind and pay attention to those things and then slowly figure out why that happened. Okay, Um, And. Is there – oh, sorry. Um, going back to the Copa America, um, you guys had those instant reaction episodes, like, directly after 
uh, of yeah. a U.S. men's national team match. And I think I, I really appreciated that because we were sort of able to see that uh, visceral, emotional reaction that you would have after a match and then listen to the next episode uh, a few hours later and you guys would have more of a better understanding of what happened in the match. Um, is that something you guys are going to continue doing forward? And do you guys think there were like benefits uh, from that as podcasters? Oh, yeah. So the, the reason was that basically we realized we were getting very analytical, especially on U.S. national team games, and maybe losing a bit of that sort of that, that passion, right? So we wanted to, um, I mean, first of all, just to get something out quickly, because we know people are looking for quick reactions, <laughs> right? That's, the, that's when people want to hear stuff the most, right? Yeah. So to get our emotional reaction out there, um, so that we had the two things, we had the emotional version, and then we have the analytical version. And then the really interesting thing for us was seeing um, what we got wrong just from watching it once and having the emotional reaction, maybe we'd be sort of angry at, um, I don't know, say we'd be angry at DeAndre Yedlings. It seemed like it was his fault that he considered the goal. Uh, but then when you rewatch it, you would see that maybe the, the move actually breaks down four passes earlier and he's out of position because he's trying to help someone else out. So it's really interesting to compare what we thought had happened with what actually happened when we managed to watch it again. When, when I'm listening to this to this show, you and Taylor just complement each other so well. Uh, why is that <laughs> exactly? <laughs> I think I think partly it's um, um, just sonically. I think having two different accents, I genuinely <laughs> think, is good because people um, can differentiate the two people. Um, and then just in terms of our approach, there's definitely a thing where Taylor is more emotional and I'm more analytical so it's this sort of like head versus heart type thing so we tend to have slightly different takes on things and i think the other thing is just because we've done it so long we sort of trust each other so that any of that sort of awkwardness that can be there um for people who are doing it um who don't know each other as well all of that is gone right like if he's going off on some rant i trust that I, he knows where he's going um and i imagine it's kind of similar for you guys right because you're brothers yeah so you um obviously you maybe have some sibling rivalry and that kind of stuff as well. But you basically you know each other better than like two random guys who only meet say once a week to do a podcast. I think that's that's the big difference. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Also, how there are two things I want to know. How do you guys come up with your metaphors and analogies right on the spot? And how did you come up with the different games you play on the show? Because I always come up with an idea and I realize, oh, the Total Soccer Show has already done something similar to that. <laughs> The secret is we, we steal it all from you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the, the metaphors and analogies, we just sort of, um, it's not sort of pre-planned. It's more just that it's just a good way to describe something because if you're trying to, if you're trying to describe um, a soccer play or a move or something that happened, um, it's, I think it's realizing that it's not, it's not that interesting when you're trying to like, paint a picture of what happened on a soccer field if someone can't actually see what happened right so it's maybe it's easier and better to put an image in someone's head that corresponds with that to make it more understandable if yeah. that makes sense yeah it does and it's, if anything i kind of want to watch it's always sunny in philadelphia now because taylor <laughs> taylor consistently references that show so yeah he he got me into watching that i i think i'd watched one episode and i was like oh this is gross i don't need to watch this <laughs> he sort of convinced me that it was like gross on the surface, but it's very like clever and layered underneath. And it turns out he was right. There's a lot going on there that's that's really really interesting. Yeah, it, it seems like it, and obviously a lot that's relatable to soccer. So, 
Well, I think Taylor forces it to be, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on uh, from the Total Soccer Show, uh, personally as a fan, as you said before, you're a fan of Wolverhampton. How optimistic are you about them in the long run right now? I'm still in that confused stage. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you guys have been following, but there was the takeover mm-hmm. this summer um, from a, sort of a Chinese investment group. Um, that were linked up with George Mendes, this mm-hmm. sort of Portuguese super agent who represents Mourinho and Ronaldo. And then uh, basically the manager was fired. Kenny Jackett was got rid of, even though he'd done a decent job the last two years. Um, Walter Zenga was brought in, who uh, I'm still not sure whether he's a good coach or just a good face and a good sort of talker. Um, and then they've also brought in loads and loads of players who were all George Mendes related. Like A lot of them played for Benfica B or... Um, we're on the lower end of the Benfica roster, and I'm always a little suspicious of when that's happening. Like, not that not that it's um, some big scam where they're just using Wolves to make money, but it it just seems like it does it. It's not true that the ideal solution for all of Wolves' problems just happen to be a bunch of Benfica B players. So I'm kind of worried. I'm worried about what happens going forward if our only options are George Mendes players. And how, how do you think they're faring this season so far? It started off really positively. I think we won our first three games, and then there was a massive, massive slide. Um, uh, just last week in the midweek game, we lost 4-0 to Barnsley, yeah. which is such a, a championship depressing <laughs> scoreline. Uh, but then we'll be, beat Newcastle 2-0 um, at the weekend, which is a good result, mm-hmm. and then lost 2-0 to Newcastle in the EFL Cup um, this midweek. So it's very up and down. There's a lot of uh, new faces in the team and a lot of sort of uh, changes going on. And weirdly, the thing that worries me the most is I watch them on TV whenever I can here, which isn't that often because they're not on too regularly. And then whenever I go home, I'll go to a couple of games. So I always have a good feel for the team. Um, but all of a sudden, because there's been this massive change, I literally don't recognize the team right now because I haven't had a chance to watch the current team play. Um, so I'll, I'll go home in October and I'll get to have a look at them so I'll understand who Teixeira is. But right now, I just don't have a concept of him, which is a really strange sort of alienating feeling. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so do you think there's a chance for promotion this year? There's always a chance, right? Because there's the <laughs> top two and then there's the yeah. next six are in the playoffs. So yeah, there's definitely a chance for promotion this year. But I'd say it's no more. there's no more of a chance this year than there was last year, despite okay. all the money that's been spent in the summer. Okay, and then this is sort of more of a fun question. If there was one American, realistically, that uh, Wolverhampton could buy, who would you choose? So not Ooh. not Christian Pulisic, obviously. Okay, so it's got to be realistic. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Um, I've been a big fan of Will Trap. Oh, Darlington Nagby. Okay, would he count? Yeah, yeah. He, I think I think that could happen in the championship. Love, I'd love. To, yeah, I guess from MLS to a decent championship team is an okay transfer, right? Yeah, yeah. I would definitely. Darlington Nagby is the player I would take. And is there is there a particular reason why outside of your obvious love for Darlington Nagby? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just generally like the way he plays. I think he's very sort of smooth with the ball, like a really smart uh, possession player. And it's also because he'd be he'd be at the very centre of the team. You know what I mean? Doug yeah. Snagby sort of right, right in the middle at the centre of all the action would be great instead of just having like another winger who'd be sort of in and out of the team. Mm. Yeah. Well, and if that were to happen, maybe Jurgen Klinsmann would actually select Darlington Snagby. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> And play him. Yeah, exactly. I guess he does select him. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he just doesn't play him. Um, and then, you know, one of the other things you guys have touched on the show is that U.S. fans have become sort of trigger shy when it comes to hyping players. 
yeah. especially with this whole Freddie Adu and Christian Pulisic, or the Christian Pulisic situation and people comparing him to Freddie Adu, which I think is a ridiculous comparison. And I know you think that way too. So, so what would be your message to U.S. soccer fans about Christian Pulisic? I mean, I think it's the, I mean, definitely believe the hype, right? He's, I mean, he's sometimes starting, sometimes coming off the bench. I actually just watched him. He played about 30 minutes for Borussia Dortmund um, in a two, a 3-1 win over Freiburg this afternoon. Yeah. Um, so Gu- Guerrero could have passed it to him there on his goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. You guys saw it too, right? Yeah. Uh, but the fact that he is in and around that team is means that he is the real deal, right? But I think... The, the, the place to pump the brakes is to suddenly think that having a player who is is already that good and has the potential to be even better doesn't mean that the U.S. is now a contender to win the World Cup, right? You right. need multiple Christian politics before you can think about things like winning the World Cup. And that's I guess that's a message not so much to the hardcore soccer fans like like the people on this, on this show right now, but to the sort of... Um, the, the casual soccer fans who don't pay that much attention. That's what worries me, is the the people who, who only dip in every four years to see what happens in the World Cup. If suddenly they hear, oh, there's this, like, wonder kid, like, now we're going to win the World Cup, that stuff scares me, because then you get... Maybe the U.S. went to the round of 16 again, and everybody's super disappointed because they're expecting more this time. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is, Freddie Adu is obviously an interesting situation in and of itself, but we've also had players like... Connor Casey at Borussia Dortmund or Kenny Cooper at United who Manchester United who you know have sort of been in the system but and we've we've sort of pinned our hopes on those types of players but it hasn't panned out and I think it's all sort of added to that thing but like like you said no one has done what Christian Pulisic has done none of those players have so I don't know I that comparison always always is always funny to me and yeah and the weird one with Freddie Adu is that the hype genuinely was when he was too young, right? I mean, like right. I said at the start of this show, I was watching DC United because I'd heard the name Freddie Adu, <laughs> and he was a 15-year-old coming on and playing and, you know, not doing particularly well. Um, and I think it was just a thing of MLS overhyping him and everybody getting way too way too excited. I think it's very different because Christian Pulisic actually has achieved things like playing for a top-level European team. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the Wolverhampton and Darlington Abbey question, I'm kind of surprised he didn't pick Tommy Thompson, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Tommy Thompson still has some convincing to do, much as I would love to see him at Wolverhampton. I'd, I'd rather have the sort of the more finished product that is Darlington next. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if Tommy Thompson wants to come with him, that's fine with me. <laughs> so, so as you were saying, uh, certain players for the U.S. national team, we do hold into uh, we do hold to a high standard and we expect a lot of them. Um, obviously, the bar is set higher for English national team players, but do you think that it's the same kind of pressure that we put on U.S. players that English fans do on English players of a higher caliber? So you're talking about like young, up-and-coming English players? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say the the bar is weirdly similar in that English fans also want their sort of messiah that will lead them to the World Cup, right? Because... <laughs> I mean, even though England have won it once, it's almost like the worst thing that ever happened because now we're desperate to win it again and we keep counting the years since we did something. I think it's literally 50 years since England won, won the World Cup. Yep. Um, and I, I can remember when Wayne Rooney was a 16, 17-year-old, everybody was very excited because they thought, oh, this is the kid that's going to lead us to um, another another championship win. And on top of that, there's, there's obviously much more media, right? Like all the TV stations, all the newspapers... 
um, there's a lot more focus on a young player like that. So, if anything, it's more dangerous to be a promising young player in England because of all that media attention than it is to be a promising young American player. Because even though there are a lot of podcasts and websites talking about you that aren't so like ABC News doesn't lead with what Christian Pulisic is doing. Yeah, yeah, and you know we we see the the English national team with so much talent. You know, players like Raheem Sterling or Ross Barkley who didn't play. Um, or Harry Kane, this young talent. Uh, but, you know, they don't, they always underperform. Whereas you feel like with the U.S., they, they kind of overachieve. What, what do you think is the fundamental difference there? So, you know, the, the, you would say on paper England has a better 11 than the United States uh, national team. But at the World Cups, recently at least, the U.S. has done better or just as well as, as England has. I mean, honestly, if I knew the answer to that, That's um, true. I, would, I would take the England job and earn myself a lot of money <laughs> and a lot of glory. Um, my, my guess is, especially over the last few years, there's, de- there's still been a thing of almost having too many famous players and sort of just making sure you get all of those guys in the team. Like I, I still remember the, uh, the mid-2000s um, of like Gerrard, Lampard, Scholes and Beckham and... Most people, if you ask them now, would say that maybe Paul Scholes is the best player of those four, and he should be the one that the team is built around. But because like Gerard and Lampard wanted to play centre midfield, and Beckham also liked it sometimes, Paul Scholes ended up as sort of a pushed out there left midfielder. And I feel like there's maybe not the um, the focus on just picking a team system and sticking with it, and it's more more a focus on sort of celebrity names. And not to the degree that that's all they're doing, but I think that's definitely something that um, caused an imbalance. Even when you look at say. Um, Wayne Rooney playing centre midfield for England at Euro 2016. Like we we were kind of on board with it with the Total Soccer Show because we saw his performances as not being too bad in centre midfield. But it's still an odd situation to ask him to do that for the first time for the national team in a tournament. Yeah, and it seems like for Wayne Rooney, there's a lot of everything seems to be his fault for for Manchester United right. and the English national team. So I'm sort of hoping he comes back to Everton. Next summer, but we'll we'll see about that. We'll see if that actually happens. Um, as long as he doesn't take Ross Barkley's place, I want to see Ross Barkley. That, you know, that's true. Keep playing, keep playing. Yeah, and to be honest, Barkley hasn't. He's been okay this season. He's very. He's a very up and down player. A lot of a lot of Everton fans feel as if he, you know, he has a lot of technical talent. Obviously, he just doesn't have the brain. I've seen that a right. lot on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I've been worried about that ever since his first post-match interview when he sort of froze when they asked him a question. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if maybe that was going to be a problem. Yeah, well, he just seems to make the wrong decision every time because he he has so much talent. You can see it. I mean, he he should be the best player on Everton. But I mean, how old is he, how old is he now? I think 22, 21, 22. He's still young. I mean, there's still time, right? There's yeah, still time. I, yeah. I can stay optimistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love I love Ross Barkley, so <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Um, okay, so is there? Can you tell us one English player that you're, young English player that you're really excited about that hasn't broken into the English national team? That's not named Patrick Bamford. <laughs> um, so um, it, it sounds like you guys listen to the show, so you know about the the scouting network. Yes, yeah. Do, right? um, so one name we've been hearing a lot about recently is Marcus Edwards, who plays for Tottenham, and I think made his debut or at least his first appearance in a while. Yeah in the EFL Cup this past weekend um, and they call him the English Messi because mm-hmm. um, he's this like short guy who plays on the wing or attacking midfield likes to wear number 10 and is sort of super creative and dribbly so that's that's one guy I'm really excited to see break through that's awesome so you could have an Edwards CCV teammate thing at Tottenham in yeah. the future 
<laughs> That'd be pretty yeah, cool. absolutely. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, I'm the, with Cameron Carter-Vickers, I think I'm the one guy who is not worried about him switching nationalities because whichever team he chooses to play for, he'll be playing for my national team. <laughs> that's, 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 true. CCB. that's true. Uh, that's true. I'm I'm getting a little bit frantic about Cameron Carter-Vickers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like that with uh, Gideon Zalalem too, so right. we'll see. We'll see. It's harder because he, he's from England. He's lived there his entire life, so... Yeah, if anything, it's weirder that Cameron Carter-Vickers just decided to go for the U.S. national team system. Yeah, it's, yeah I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they did that. Someone must have contacted him at some point, and yeah. he accepted. So someone very persuasive was at work there. Yeah, I think he said. Uh, well, he was con- obviously he was contacted to come play, and then he said he liked the environment a lot, so he was going to stick right. with them at least at the youth level. So we'll see if that holds true. We'll see he, if he's there in October. That'd be uh, right. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, hopefully, Jorge Villafania is there though. I'm a, I'm a big Jorge Villafania fan, so... Yeah, I'm, a, a certain man named Jacob Klinsman appears not to be, so I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah, well, I like Kellen Acosta, so we'll see. <laughs> He's a left-back option. All right, as we mentioned, we do have some listener questions. So uh, our first one is yeah. um, maybe the biggest difference in coaching – or sorry, what is the biggest difference in coaching between the U.S. and England? Uh, like what do coaches prioritize uh, at the youth level? And that comes from Ryan Connor. So youth team coaches in the U.S. and England? Yeah. That was his uh, question, I mean, if I you can't, can answer that. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say that I know too much about um, about the same at either level. Um, I do know that um, in the U.S. there seems to be this constant sort of evolution of what the, the youth coaching system is going to be. You know, there's the movement with the academies recently. And I also know that um, one of the big things here in the U.S. is uh, the idea that you can also go to college, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's a thing of you can coach someone to be good enough to get themselves a college scholarship, and that has a net positive effect on their life, right? Because even if they don't end up then getting drafted and going to MLS or anything like that, they still uh, get into college where maybe they otherwise uh, would not have. So I feel like there is sort of more of a, um, a whole-person approach in the U.S. versus in England there just seemed to be a lot of just uh, try and get these kids into academies and then we sort of spit them out afterwards. Yeah, that makes sense. And, well, the college system's interesting. And recently, I think a couple weeks ago, you guys talked about how they're going to expand their season, um, possibly, uh, yeah. to, to fall and spring, I believe. And uh, you guys were talking about why that may be. And if you don't mind, I think my th- I'm going to give you my theory. Uh, yeah. My theory, I think a lot of times it's hard when you have a player like Jordan Morris, who is in a key time in his development, only playing for three months out of the year. So I think I think extending that would be overall good for U.S. soccer. So yeah, I mean that may, that would make sense to me. Yeah, I mean a lot of people were super frustrated that Jordan Morris didn't sort of make the jump earlier. I'm still kind of confused why he spent that extra year um, playing playing for Stanford when everybody everybody <laughs> thought he was ready. Um, he likes Stanford they, apparently. Did they did they win the College Cup? Maybe he stayed to win I, the tournament. I think they did. Been? I think they did. Um, yeah, that, that may be what he was in it for. And the, the thing with them going to uh, uh, spring and fall, um, we got that from Travis Clark of TopDrawSoccer.com. Mm. So that would be the uh, the Twitter account, Travis M. Clark, and the website to watch to uh, for any developments there. Yeah, yeah. TopDrawSoccer is a great site, actually. I love that website. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. All right, our second listener question comes from Dinesh Raj. Um, it's actually three questions. <laughs> so... <laughs> How much does TV money impact the overall quality of the English Premier League? Why do you think England fails so much in the UCL? And uh, 
what do they have to do to get better than La Liga? So I'm assuming that's with the UCL in, in the Champions League. I see. Okay, so TV money in the Premier League, I, I'm really weirdly optimistic about it because I think it might level the field a little bit. Like you may get more teams in the middle of the pack can afford to build a really good squad and compete, and it may, it may shake things up a bit. Like you'll still get Man City still have more money than everybody, for example. Um, but when you see something like, something like Leicester City last year, um, I know it was kind of a, a weirdly freak occurrence, but it's also partly due to the fact that they, they had money to build that team. Right. And they didn't have to, they weren't forced financially to sell players. Like the, uh, Kante only left sort of because he wanted to go to Chelsea. He didn't leave because Leicester couldn't afford to pay him. So I'm really excited for sort of the middle and lower teams to have more money to be able to compete. Um, in terms of the Champions League, I, th- I still think there's a sort of weird structure to soccer where there's a lot of English teams that are sort of at the top level and then Real Madrid and Barcelona are sort of still that next level up and you're still going to get guys like, who am I thinking of, like Gareth Bale, Luka Modric, uh, Luis Suarez, even Thierry Henry back in the day, they still see that move through a Barcelona or Real Madrid as a thing that they cannot turn down because it's like this once-in-a-lifetime experience to go and play for either of those two teams. And I'm not sure that that's going to change anytime soon. So, based on their reputation, so do you think Manchester United is basically the only team that can compete on that level? Not even there, because look at what happened to Cristiano Ronaldo, that's, right? Yeah, he that's true. the draw of Real Madrid, and he, <laughs> he sort of had to leave. I know it's, it's slightly different for him because... Um, he's from Portugal, and so Real Madrid's that little bit closer and that little bit more influential in his life. Yeah. But it, I think it's still that weird, that weird hierarchy. And then I also, I, I am a believer in the idea that the Premier League is so tough that you're sort of more is taken out of you week to week, so that Champions League becomes a little harder. And I still believe that when you look at the scorelines like Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atletico to some extent, sort of they can certain weeks they can coast in La Liga and get away with it. Whereas if you try and coast in the Premier League, you get beat up and you lose. Yeah, same thing with Bayern Munich, right? And do you also <laughs> yeah. think that having an extra competition in England is is, uh, is a factor for that? Definitely, yeah. I think the, it's almost like those two question, the two questions are connected, right? There's more money in the Premier League, which means more of the middle-tier teams can compete, which makes it harder for the Champions League teams. But then they go in the Champions League and they're up against teams that maybe don't have that same week-in, week-out competition. Right, yeah, and it's interesting that you're talking about Ronaldo going to Real Madrid because, I mean, you're right, because a player like Angel Di Maria, who's obviously a fantastic player, one of the top players in the world, he's going. he went to Manchester United, but he was still a player that Real Madrid did not want at that point. Yeah, so. same for Mesut Ozil. Right, exactly. So, yeah, interesting. All right, so those are the listener questions. Um, thank you so much, Daryl, for being on. We'll let you get to your indoor soccer match. We know you have to get to... Yeah, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Daryl Grove. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Daryl, for being on the show. If you haven't heard of the Total Soccer Show, which I'm sure you have, you can definitely go check them out. A link to their podcast as well as Daryl's Twitter will be in the description of this episode. Once again, check out Ambitious Strike at AmbitiousStrike.com for some incredible soccer-themed apparel and use the code BROTHERS at checkout for a 15% off discount. 
Make sure you follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and we are also on Twitter and Instagram under at Soccer Bros Pod. We also have an email for the podcast. You can email us your questions or your comments. That's soccerbrotherspodcast at gmail.com. That's all we have for you today. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Daryl Grove. And we'll see you next time for episode 62 of the Soccer Brothers Podcast. <laughs>